morning. My name is James Trevilian, and I am the pastor to students and families here at OBC, and I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you this morning. Now, I know it's not exactly a, a super happy thought thinking about an expiration date, maybe even a little macabre, but uh, it does remind us that our time on earth is limited, and we need to make the most of the time that we're given. Have you ever visited with someone who has a terminal illness? maybe spoken with someone who is otherwise nearing the end of their life. Knowing that you're not long for this world causes a person to consider what's really important in life, especially given that they have so little time left to utilize. Now, this doesn't instantly make a person a life coach or a counselor. I mean, you do still have to take things with a grain of salt. But realizing death is near does give many people a new perspective on life. What's really important? Did I make a difference? Is there anything that I need to complete before I'm gone? I recently learned about a nurse named Bronnie Ware. She's from Australia and worked in something called palliative care, uh, similar to hospice, but uh, more involved with patients who have received a life-altering diagnosis. And oftentimes that diagnosis does lead to being a terminal condition. So in a viral blog post that she authored, she shared the top regrets of dying patients that she worked with over the years. She says that she was inspired to share these at the request of those that she had served in order to, in their words, ensure that others didn't make the same mistakes. Much of the regrets that she cites have to do with leaving something unsaid or undone. For example, the top regret, I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself not the life that others expected of me. How often do we make a decision to do something based off of what other people are going to think about us? You know, maybe that business opportunity, and they said, oh, that's, that's just silly. Don't do that. Another regret. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. You know, sometimes our desire to keep the peace causes us to keep in something that ought to be said. And as a matter of fact, Ware pointed out that some of the patients she worked with had bottled up so much that it may have led to their condition. How about this one? I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. It is so easy to lose track of friendships. You know, people move, jobs change, things happen. And you know that stalking your, Facebook, uh, stalking your high school buddies on Facebook doesn't exactly count, right? That doesn't count as keeping up with people. Now, I experienced a bit of a gut punch reading one of the regrets on the list. Ware claims that every male patient she served wished that they had not worked so hard. And she used that word, every. Now, that is an anecdotal claim, but I, for one, am inclined to believe it. I know plenty of men, whether they're a pastor or a businessman or tradesman, white-collar, blue-collar, They've regretted missing out on things in life due to a perpetual lifestyle of overwork. I can't say I've ever interacted with an elderly believer, male or female for that matter, who says, you know what, I wish I spent more time at work. That's my regret. I wanted to be at work more than I was, and I'm just so sorry that, that I wasn't there enough. You know, we can learn a lot from some of these deathbed confessionals, can't we? I recently discovered that the Bible preserved the words of one man who was expecting to die soon, and I'm willing to bet that you haven't heard of him, unless you were here first service, you can't cheat. <laughs> so I didn't recognize his name before, not off the top of my head, I sure wouldn't have. You probably recognize the name King Solomon, right? If you've been around the church for a while, uh, that great son of King David uh, wrote most of the book of Proverbs. 
You might even recognize the passage Proverbs 31. That's the passage that extols the virtues of a righteous woman, uh, the words of King Lemuel to his son. Now, have you heard, ever heard of this guy, Agur, son of Yakeh? I see some nods, but you're probably here first. No, <laughs> no it's, a, it's an unusual name and a, a little passage nestled in Proverbs chapter 30 that, uh, that doesn't get a whole lot of attention. Uh, and you might want to pronounce his name like the wood boring tool, like an auger, but uh, if you want to be technical and, you know, put my nerd glasses on, then it's agur. But if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and flip over to Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs is one of the poetic or wisdom books in the Bible. Uh, if you crack open your Bible to the middle, you'll probably find Psalms, and if you just kind of shuffle over a couple of pages, you'll eventually hit Proverbs. And uh, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 30. And if you don't have your Bible with you, we'll have the words up on the screen in a moment. Now, to me, it's kind of disappointing that we don't know for sure who Agur was. Proverbs 30 verse 1 is the only reference in the Bible to the guy. Ancient Jewish tradition claimed that Agur, son of Yakeh, was actually an allegory that somehow referred to King Solomon having written the passage. Most later scholars are kind of like, nah, I don't think so. Uh, and after studying it, I'm kind of convinced of the same thing. I don't think that it's Solomon. We have a kind of a theory that Agur was a Gentile from somewhere else in the Middle East. We could keep going, but the bottom line is that we don't know for sure who Agur was. Nobody really knows. It's probable that Solomon liked Agur's words and took them and added them into his collection of Proverbs. Ultimately, we do know that Agur's words were preserved for us through the ages by the Holy Spirit as inspired scripture, and so that in and of itself is enough of a reason to take, it, take, take a look at what he said. Now, there is one thing that we do know about Agur. The Hebrew indicates that his death is imminent. He's staring death in the face. Look with me at verses 7 through 9 of Proverbs chapter 30. They'll be up on the screen. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, this passage stands out because it is the only prayer recorded in the book of Proverbs. So, Agur asks God for something before he dies. He's in this prayer, and he's asking God. And the phrasing of his request in verse 7 indicates that he is expecting to die in the near future. We don't know whether he's old and is just kind of knows it's coming. Maybe he has some kind of terminal illness, uh, maybe a wound, something. We don't know. But we do know that death is coming and he's waiting for it, knows it and is expecting it. And as he's praying this prayer, he's considering what's most important to him. And so what does Agur ask for in this moment as he waits death? Look again at verse 8. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. So Agur is asking for two things. The first is removal of deceit from his life. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. This removal of dishonesty is both for Agur himself and for those who are around him. Agur doesn't want to be deceitful, and he doesn't want the people around him to be liars. You know, Proverbs 22.1 reminds us that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. I think we'd all pretty much agree with that, that this is a desirable thing. 
No one enjoys being the victim of deceit, and, and I think we all want to be remembered and regarded as honest. This request makes sense. The second thing Augur asks for is that he would not have too much or too little. Give me neither poverty nor riches. As he approaches death, Agur desires a sort of economic modesty. He doesn't want to be in poverty, but he also doesn't want to be too wealthy. This, along with Agur's desire for the removal of deceit, leads us to his main request in this prayer. Agur's primary petition is for the food that is needful. Now, this is kind of an interesting phrase. Though Agur is specifically referencing food, it's clear he's not just referring to food here. Food here represents all of our needs, not just the stuff that we need to eat. The idea of what is needful is literally that which has been decreed, or as the New American Standard translates, the food that is my portion. The New Living Translation renders this phrase as, give me just enough to satisfy my needs. So Agur is asking for his quota, his portion, his ration, just enough. Now, I'm not in Agur's place, so I'm not really sure what I would ask for if I were in his shoes. I, I know that my first thoughts are, are kind of selfish, self-centered. You know, I want to preview the next season of The Mandalorian before I'm gone. I want to find out what happens. Like, that's, that's my request. Or maybe uh, I'd like a double cheeseburger and some fries. If you're going to the West Coast, hit the in and out bring me some of that goodness. That's, that's what I'm thinking. That, that probably says something about me. Now, maybe I'd be concerned for my family or my friends, right? I mean, this was Jesus when he was on the cross. He ensured that John was going to care for Mary, his mother. I'm not really sure that, that my heart or my mind would be on, give me just enough. It seems kind of like an odd thought. Why is it that Agur asks for just enough? So we see the connection between these two requests in verse 9. Agur realizes if he's given more than enough, the riches that he talks about in the previous verse, he'd be tempted to scoff at God. Who's the Lord? I got this. I provide for myself. Why do I need God? I can pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I don't need him. I'm good. Now, on the flip side, if he were destitute, Agur would be tempted to steal in order to eat. He says that if he was forced to steal to survive, he would profane the name of God. And if we take his words here literally, he does not want to cause violence to the name of God by having to steal and having to sin. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on this as you've studied the Bible, but God's name is a pretty big deal. The third commandment, which you can find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, deals with God's name. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Yikes. Even if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, sometimes I think we can get kind of fuzzy on this idea of taking the Lord's name in vain. This simply means misusing God's name. This happens two main ways. I think we're all kind of familiar with the first. If God's name is used irreverently or disrespectfully, as if it was some kind of swear word or an expletive, then that is using the Lord's name in vain. Watch a few minutes of a Let's Play on YouTube, and you'll probably hear an example of that happening, right? So the second is this, that if God's name is used to condone a dishonest act, then his name has been used in vain. Now, you know, if you've studied history, God's name has been wrongly used to justify all sorts of heinous acts and disreputable schemes. 
I fear for those who would use God's name in such a way, especially given the warning that's tacked onto this command, that the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God's name is connected to his person, his presence, and his power. And if we take his name and use it flippantly, uh, we use it dishonestly, then we are guilty of using God's name in vain. That's a scary place to be, and that's not a place that I want to be. So in this case, Agur feared that he would dishonor God's name if he didn't have enough or if he had too much. By having enough, Agur is able to recognize God's provision in his life. He doesn't have to rely on his own actions to meet his needs, whether it's through theft or through profit. If he's, he's kept from sinning and by avoiding sin, he avoids dishonoring God's name. Now, I can't say I've ever been in a position of not having enough to the point of considering theft in order to provide for my family. Honestly, the first thing that popped into my head thinking about that was, was Aladdin. Got to eat to live, got to steal to eat. If you've watched the cartoon, again, that probably says something about me as a person, but this is a real problem. And I know that when we think about this, if you're like me, uh, my thoughts thinking about having to steal to eat, go to some poor village somewhere on the other side of the planet, but this also is a problem here in the United States as well. Uh, in September, NPR reported that around 10% of households had experienced food insecurity last year in 2019. If you're not familiar with that term, food insecurity is not having enough food to meet the needs of your household or not knowing where your next meal will come from. That's a terrifying place to be. Now, as you probably can imagine, the problem has gotten much worse because of COVID. Early estimates are predicting that almost one in four U.S. households experienced food insecurity this year in 2020. And food insecurity is much more likely to impact households with children. Earlier this month, several news outlets reported a significant uptick in theft, but this theft is unusual. People aren't stealing the usual Christmas time things that are targeted for theft. They're not trying to steal PS5s. They're not trying to steal Tickle Me Elmo. They're not trying to steal electronics you can tuck in your pocket and walk out with. No, according to the Washington Post, people are stealing staples like bread, pasta, and baby formula. One person interviewed said this, and it just breaks my heart. She'd take things like ground beef, rice, or potatoes, but always pay for something small, like a packet of M&Ms, and each time she would tell herself that God would understand. Lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to pick on this person or make light of this situation, especially knowing that Proverbs 17.5 reminds us that whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, and he who's glad at calamity will go unpunished. That's not where I want to be. I'm far more upset that someone feels the need to steal in order to provide for their family than I am about a poor theology or worldview, although that also is a problem. Now, does her situation upset you? I sure hope so. You should be upset knowing that people are going hungry and they've been driven to the point of theft in order to provide for their families. But I think our temptation when we hear about that is to start casting stones, whether it's that politician that should have done this thing, that political party that sat on this thing. Uh, maybe we are, our inspiration is to, to make a tearjerker post to find this article, send it up on social media, and go, oh man, look at this, send me all the likes, I'm going to change my filter, Woo, look at me. But really what this should do is motivate us to actually do something about it, right? 
So one of the main purposes of having enough is being able to help those who don't have enough. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and verse 11, Paul says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So when we have more than enough, we are in a position to help those who don't have enough. You know, honestly, as I was preparing this, I had started the week before last, and last Sunday, uh, I was so pleased to hear about the contribution that OBC made to support the Salvation Army here on Cape. You know, I I think that these uh, financial gifts that that we were were blessed with, that we're able to then turn around and bless them with, are going to tackle this very issue of food insecurity here on Cape. And additionally, my understanding is after Pastor Harry preached last week that more gifts were received in order to be able to bless others because of the, the message that he preached. And so I am just so proud of our church family for hearing God's word and responding to it and to being generous and to meeting those needs. Now, I do want to encourage you that, you know, I think we all have this idea that the calendar is going to flip over next week to 2021, and everything's going to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows again, that, hey, how could it possibly be worse, right? (laughs) Please don't be worse. But when January hits, the problems aren't just going to disappear. They're still going to be around, and we still need to be diligent to look for the opportunities to do something about it. So be diligent. Keep looking. Even though it's 2021, we're still feeling the effects of 2020. Now, clearly, we see Agur's fears here being realized on the poverty side of things. But I, I imagine, despite COVID and despite the economic hardships that we've faced this year, I imagine that whether you're here in the room with us or listening online today, uh, my guess is that you don't struggle as much with the poverty side of things. Now, I bet all of us have been stretched in this area this year. But my guess is that you probably have what you need to survive today and tomorrow, even if that was flexed a little bit. I believe we struggle with what Augur said, being full and denying the Lord. I think that's our primary struggle. Now, we mentioned a guy named King Solomon earlier. I'm going to briefly recap Solomon's story for you. You can find it in the book of 1 Kings if if you want to see it in detail later. But God visited Solomon after he became king and gave him the chance to ask for anything he wanted. Now again, thinking about myself, I probably would have responded in, in some way, maybe being a little self-centered, uh, but Solomon has a, a unique response to this. He asks the Lord for wisdom. 1 Kings 3, 7 through 14, Solomon says, And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life, or riches, or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has ever, none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, 
so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So Solomon's off to a pretty good start, right? He knew he needed enough to accomplish the task that was set before him. And so he needs this wisdom, and he goes and he asks for it. He doesn't ask for the other stuff. He knows what he needs, and that's what he asks for, and God grants him his request. And in addition, God blesses him with the stuff he didn't ask for. And you may be familiar with King Solomon and his wealth, but during his reign, King Solomon became renowned for not just the wisdom that he had, but for his great wealth as well. His kingdom grew. Nations paid tribute to him. Even secular historians know of the riches and the splendor of King Solomon. The temple Solomon constructed is generally regarded as a wonder of the ancient world. 1 Kings 10 gives us a small picture of Solomon's wealth. He received up to 25 tons of gold a day. That's a lot of gold. Silver was as plentiful as stone. It's like pavement, silver, whatever. He had a fleet of explorers and traders, and the list goes on and on. Basically, this dude was loaded. But despite the supernatural God-given wisdom that he had, Solomon, as Agur warned, grew callous toward God. He indulged in earthly passions that distracted him from serving the Lord. God had commanded the kings of Israel not to practice polygamy in Deuteronomy 17, 17, and yet Solomon embraced it. So he embraced it pretty headlong. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And on top of that, most of these were women that did not share his faith. And so as Solomon grew older, he became complacent in his faith, and he began to worship the idols that his wives and concubines worshipped, and he began to adopt heinous practices as he served false gods. He constructed all these places of worship, and awful things were done to worship these other gods, and Solomon participated in that. 1 Kings 11, 9 through 10 sums up the result of Solomon's decline. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Now, I don't think any of us are building high places or sacrificing to idols in a literal sense, but we face a similar problem. When we have excess, when we have more than enough, all the ooh-shiny things in life can distract us from serving God. Those things in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad, right? But the problem comes when something dethrones God and then takes His place in your life. Something like owning a nice car becomes owing a disproportionate amount on a loan for a car that's outside of your means, and then you got to work and work and work and work and put all kinds of financial strain to be able to support this car that you shouldn't have bought in the first place. Vacations are great and necessary, right? We all need to take vacations, but what if that vacation comes and haunts you afterwards? That debt just follows you through the rest of the year because you needed that picture in front of that place to be able to put on your Instagram. You know, I am a gamer. I love a good video game. But I know there's a problem in my life when I'm not getting sleep, uh, if I am, you know, just completely obsessed with something that I'm playing to the point of letting it sacrifice all the other things I should be doing in my life. That's taken that seat in, in my life. I bet uh, when you get your weekly screen time report on your phone, 
It, it kind of tells you what your social media use is. How's that compared to your devotional time? Ouch, right? Are you following in Solomon's footsteps, running headlong down a path that is distracting you from following God? How many of us are investing in things that in the end are just meaningless? Do you remember all that stuff that ended up in the garage sale or junkyard in the video from earlier? That PS5 that you just got for Christmas, you probably paid a scalper too much for it. That's eventually going to be a doorstop in a repair shop. The guy's going to be like, I got eight in the corner and there's a draft I need. I'm going to sit this right in front of the door. That's what they're doing with your Xbox 360 right now. How many of us are distracted from what really matters by pursuing the things that end up being bought for pennies in the dollar at an estate sale? Solomon eventually realized the error of his ways. If you look at uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon spent a lot of time reflecting on, on his mistakes. And Ecclesiastes 2, 9 and 11 kind of sums up how he felt about his wealth in the end. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. My wisdom never failed me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. Hmm, how many of us do the same? But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Chasing the wind reminds me of taking my dogs out at night, and there's just some random noise, and they just want to go after that, and it's nothing. Solomon had it all, and how did he feel about it in the end? It was meaningless. It was as futile as chasing wind. It was not worthwhile. We have to be focused on what's worthwhile. We have to be content with enough so that we aren't distracted by too much. So after reading Agur's prayer, as I was kind of studying this, I began to think that there was something familiar about it. And maybe it rang a bell for you too. These words sound familiar. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, you've probably heard this before. This is from Matthew 6, 9 through 13, and we call it the Lord's Prayer. And if you're in just about any church, any denomination, anywhere in the world, there's a strong likelihood that people are familiar with these words. Now, I can't help but wonder if Jesus had Agur's words in mind when he taught us this model prayer. Do you see some of the similarities? Verse 9, hallowed be your name. Jesus taught us to pray that God's name would be honored. He taught us to pray for that hallowedness or holiness and reverence of God's name. And I wouldn't be surprised if he had the third commandment in mind as he spoke these words. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus taught us to pray for deliverance from temptation and from evil. We're supposed to have the the strength to face those temptations, and we should pray to be delivered from evil, and as some translations add on there, the evil one, the ultimate deceiver. This mirrors Agur's request to be delivered from deceit and those who are deceitful. And then, verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. You know, it's interesting about this idea of daily bread. If you look at that word that's translated as daily, you actually can't find that Greek word outside of the New Testament of the Bible. It's almost, and there's a sense, and I'm kind of speculating here, but there's a sense in which Jesus kind of almost made up a word to be able to describe a concept 
when translating it daily makes sense, but there's also a sense in which this term refers to having the bread for today and also the bread for tomorrow. And so it gives us this idea of having just enough that your immediate needs are met. This, this, this sounds almost exactly like what Agur said. You know, give us today the food that we need, the food that is needful. You know, I've read and prayed the Lord's Prayer before, and I'm sure you have too, but I didn't, I'm not sure I connected the dots on this idea of having our daily bread and having enough. You know, having just enough causes us to bring honor to God's name, and it ke- keeps us from temptation and from deceit. You know, our prayers really should be for our daily bread. You know, all this talk about daily bread has kind of got me thinking about bread. You know, I I chose a a slice of bread as the the backdrop for all the slides you've been seeing today. I like bread. I like eating bread. I like everything that has to do with bread. Who doesn't like just a delicious, yeasty, carbohydrate-loaded goodness? I like making bread. And as you can see, one of the things I like making is pizza dough. And you guys, I saved this illustration for last because I know that you're going to be like, I hate you because I'm hungry and it's almost lunchtime and you're talking about pizza, but I'm going to do it anyway. I love making pizza, man. There's nothing like that pizza dough sitting in the fridge for a couple of days, just getting all that yeasty goodness in there. And then you throw it. I've got a slab of steel. I throw it on in the oven and it gets all crispy and you throw the broiler to crisp up the toppings. And man, I'm going to start drooling all over the place here talking about it. So just about every bread can be summed up in four ingredients, flour, water, salt, and some, some kind of leavening. There are variations of this. If you're gluten-free, you know you can swap out all kinds of things for wheat flour. You can blend flours to to get a different kind of bread, like a rye or a cornbread. You can sub out fat or oil for some of the water. You You use lard in an authentic tortilla, maybe some olive oil in a nice focaccia bread. You can get away without leavening for a flatbread like matzah. You can add other things to bread. Maybe you had a nice Christmas stolen with some fruit and some nuts in there. But without your basic ingredients, your bread is not going to do what you want it to do. Even then, you need the right amount of basic ingredients. Too much water, and your bread's going to cave in or go flat. Too much flour, and it just gets super crumbly and is kind of a mess. The wrong amount of salt can cause your bread to rise too fast or not enough at all. What makes this even more frustrating is that following a recipe to the letter doesn't guarantee success. The amount of liquid has to be modified if you're in a more humid climate or a more dry climate. If you proof in the summer, it's going to be different than if you proof in the winter because of the temperature. And if you're baking at high elevation, good luck. You're going to need it. It's the experience that I had in New Mexico. You take a bread recipe and you've got to completely change it when you're at altitude. It's a mess. (laughs) Now, as we close today, you're probably thinking, why is he talking about bread? I know I'm asking myself a big question. Ultimately, both Agur in Proverbs 30 and Jesus in the Lord's Prayer direct us to desire enough. We see the problems that come from not having enough or having too much. When it comes to things like hobbies, free time, possessions, wealth, how do we know when we have too much? What constitutes daily bread? What is the food that is needful for us? How much is enough? Well, I think having enough is kind of like making bread. The recipe varies based on your situation and circumstances. There's not a part of the Bible that spells out an acceptable range of net worth. 
There's not really some kind of formula that tells us when you've crossed the threshold from thrifty savings to selfish hoarding. Wouldn't it be great? Maybe it's because I tend to be kind of a rule follower, but part of me wishes there was something in the Bible that just came out and said, if thine income exceedeth this amount of the national average for thine state, then thou should feel this bad. Like something just clear and really easy to grab onto, but it doesn't exist. Having enough is not a matter of following some kind of formula or recipe. Having just enough is a mindset. It's living your life in such a way that you're content with enough. It's basing your standard of living on biblical principles, remembering that the only things that matter are the things that aren't going to disintegrate over time. That's it. Jesus said it better than I ever could, and I'm sure you're familiar with this. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So as we prepare to journey together into 2021 and hope that it's better than 2020, (laughs) I ask you to consider where your treasure is being stored up. As you look at your calendar, as you look at your budget, your checkbook, your goals, your resolutions for the year, consider and think about just how much is enough. Father, I pray just as Agur did that you would give us just enough. Help us not to deny you in wealth or to curse you in poverty. Give us the humility to seek help when we need it. Prompt us to bless others out of our abundance. Help us to utilize our time, not in the things that distract us from you, but that guide us toward you. We ask that you guide our decisions and our investments so that they may result in our being content with enough. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.